Well, good morning. It is a real blessing for us to be able to be together. I want to also welcome those of you who are joining us online. Uh, I see a lot of faces I know. I see many other faces that are new to me, and so I want to extend a special welcome to those of you who might be visiting today. Uh, and if you would, if, if you feel comfortable, just staying around a little bit after church, give us an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. That would be a real blessing uh, to, to this church family. Uh, as Keith mentioned at the very beginning of worship, we're in our third week of this new uh, study focus that we're calling A Beginner's Guide to Church. And Part of the the reason we're we're calling it that is because we want to be people who, regardless of of how many years we might have been going to church, if this is our our first Sunday or not, that in some way, one one way or another, all of us need to understand that, that with as much as we might know and as much as we might have experienced, we're still beginners when it comes to following in the way of Jesus, when it comes to becoming more and more like Jesus, that with as much progress as we might have feel like we've made, we know that there's still room left for us to grow and develop. You know, but, but in a, a similar way, if we kind of step back out of just thinking in terms of us as individuals, I think, I think this time in my life, this time in the life of the world, it's, it's really different. COVID-19, the the pandemic, everything that that kind of happened to us as people, it's it's really forcing us, I think, to to reacquaint ourselves, even again, if, if we've been involved in church our entire lives, to kind of wrestle with a new beginning, not just for us as individual believers, but for us as a collective body of believers. It's a new beginning for us as a church. And, and one of the things that I feel like, now maybe it's just my imagination, but I'm going to go with it. I feel like people are asking a new kind of question in the wake of this pandemic. right? It's less that people might be asking which church should I go to? And I think people are now beginning to ask, why should I go to church at all? Now, this world right here is the world that I grew up in 25 years ago in Northern California when I was still in high school. You know, if if I told one of my classmates that I went to church, that my dad was a minister, they, they didn't typically ask me any other question than why. Why would you go to church? You know, there's a lot of other fun things you could do on Sundays. Why are you doing that? And why would your dad want to be a preacher? Aren't those, don't they just go door to door knocking and bothering people and interrupting their dinner and try to push Jesus on them? Why would your dad want to do that? Right, well, that was 25 years ago on the West Coast. And while we may not be hearing anybody actually form the words to these questions, I think our world increasingly is getting to the place where it doesn't matter where you happen to live, people aren't just asking, where does your church fall on the spectrum of churches in this town? Which in case you're not sure about this, I think many of the churches in this town have, in the past, we've found our identity in figuring out where we fall on that spectrum, in the church marketplace, right? Right? If, if you're a little more conservative than us, you might want to go to Oldham Lane or Hillcrest. If you'd like things to be a little uh, you know, more progressive than we are, then you might want to go to Highland or somewhere else. 
right? And so we're just trying to cater to whatever church experience somebody might want. Well, guess what? I guess if you come up with the answer of exactly what kind of church we are in the broader church marketplace, you end up now, I think, having a bunch of really great answers to a question that not as many people are asking anymore. They're not asking for us to compare ourselves to one another so that they can figure out which flavor of church they're going to sign up for. They are wrestling with, I think we as a people in our nation are wrestling with the question, why should we bother? Does church matter? And if we're going to try to answer that kind of question, we're going to have to come up with something better than what version of church are we trying to offer compared to all the rest, right? So as a church, then, I think we should be asking, what kind of church do we really think God wants us to be? Because God absolutely wants us to be a church community that people who experience it and are a part of it would come to understand is indispensable to their life. The church isn't optional, it's essential. But if we reduce church to just what happens in this room on Sunday mornings and it's a Christian worship experience where we hope we like most of the style of the songs and the songs that are picked and the people who get up here are, are good enough with their words that we're not distracted by, by their inability to communicate and that they would never make us feel uncomfortable with what they might feel like they're trying to share with us. If that's kind of where we get ourselves situated in terms of, of what it is that we're doing when we come together as God's people, we shouldn't be surprised when folks without a, a deep commitment to church, look at what we're offering and decide that they have better things to do with their time. I'm not saying we ever set out to play church. I'm saying there are times we get to a point where when the world watches us, they think we're playing at church. That's what's going on in Corinth. When the Apostle Paul sends this letter, he realizes that as much as he wants them to be a counter-community, a different kind of gathering of people. A gathering of people that's not caught up in something like church marketplaces, but is trying to be a different kind of family altogether. A family that refuses to compete for everybody's attention or, or tries to get the most famous speaker so that they can draw the largest crowd. He realizes they're falling into that again. And he says, Jesus wants to deliver us from all of that. Jesus doesn't want us to, to choose church as a spiritual entertainment option. Jesus wants you to be, belong to this community. Jesus wants us to, to reconfigure everything about your life. Not just when you happen to be gathered together. You gather together to change every other aspect of who you are when you're not gathered together. And you're giving all that up. Because you're following after famous speakers and preachers and you think that's what's going to make you feel satisfied. You think that's what's going to make you feel important. That if your preacher is important enough, you'll feel important. If your preacher is successful enough or the church seems successful, you'll feel successful. Paul says, what are you doing? Let's open our Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 starting in verse 4. When someone says, my preacher's Paul, right, I belong to Paul. And someone else says, I belong to Apollos. 
aren't you acting like people without the Spirit? After all, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants who helped you to believe. Each one had a role given to them, not by themselves, but by the Lord. I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Because of this, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But only the one who is anything is God who makes it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together. By the way, the Greek there is, they are one. And they don't just work together, they're one. But each one will receive their own reward for their own Labor. We are God's co-workers, Paul says, and you are God's field, God's building. I laid a foundation like a wise master builder according to God's grace that was given to me, but someone else, I want you to hold on to that phrase, okay, because we're going to come back to it, verse 10, but someone else is building on top of it. Each person needs to pay attention to the way they build on it. Now, no one can lay any other foundation besides the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So whether someone builds on top of the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, grass, or hay, the first three would not be destroyed by fire. The last three would be. Each one's work will be clearly shown, and the day will make it clear because it will be revealed in a time of testing. Right? It'll be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. Okay, so Paul, who's been frustrated with the fact that he, he had come to Corinth, right? he's writing this letter from Ephesus. But originally he had come to Corinth and he had called this group of people together out of the competitive dog-eat-dog world where everybody's at each other's throats and they're all trying to use every relationship that they have, every community or institution that they're a part of, they're trying to use it to make them feel worthy. They're trying to use those relationships and those institutions to make them feel like winners, like overcomers, like people who can handle everything and anything they might face. And Paul says, I I came to call you out of that world and I was filled with God's grace and confidence to believe that if you would trust that you'd been set free from that way of life, you would show all the other people in Corinth an alternative way of life that they wouldn't believe is possible unless they saw it being lived out in you and through you. That's what I was, I wasn't just hoping for you to be set free, I was hoping for other people to realize they can be set free. But you have willingly gone back to that competitive insecure, anxiety-filled, comparing your life to somebody else's life all the time, all the time, all the time. You've gone back to that. You've chosen to go back to that. You're, You're trying to build your life on that. But see, there's only one foundation, Paul says, and it's already been laid. It's Christ. It's Christ and him crucified. That's what your life's built on. Now, what Paul is mostly talking about here in this passage of 1 Corinthians is church leaders. And he says a few things about church leaders. 
It's talking obviously about the nature of the church itself, but in order for the church to be the kind of church, the, the kind of spiritual community God wants it to be, well, the church leaders need to behave in a certain way. They need to lead in a certain way. So we're going we're gonna to take a few moments to look at some of the things that Paul says about Christian leaders here, and then we're going to wrestle with it together. Now, the first thing he says is that leaders in the church are only leading like Christ when they are actively working for God as servants. When they are actively working for God as servants. See, that phrase, we are God's co-workers, when you read it at first or you hear it at first, you might think, well, well, what he primarily or only means is that you and I are important enough that we're working with God. And there are places throughout Scripture where we are told, we are reminded, we are promised that we can live lives where we get to work alongside of God. We work with God. But in this passage, Paul also wants to point to the fact that in addition to working with God, we need to never forget that we're also working for God. Not just with, but for. And so the kind of leaders the church needs are leaders who understand where they are in relationship to the creator of heaven and earth. That he has chosen them, that he has invited them, that he has recruited them to work along with him, but they answer to him. He's the one who's setting the agenda. He's the one who's setting the goals. He's the one who's calling the shots. They aren't. And they need to act like it. They need to talk like it. They need to show the rest of the church that they're not using the church to find self-importance in the broader culture so that other people outside of the church are going to be impressed with them. See, because one of the most common things in the city of Corinth were these philosophers and teachers, these people who were eloquent and gifted, and they would, through their speaking, draw people to them. They would build a following and this was not only important to those speakers, it was, it was central to people's understanding of their own identity. Which famous public speaker or teacher or leader did they belong to? This is why Paul keeps using these, these words. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. I belong to Christ. Right? But he is echoing. He's, he's offering a parody of how they talk all the time. They find their own sense of identity and importance through how famous and important the speaker is that they're following, that they identify with. And they've dragged that into church, and they're doing the same thing there. And Paul says part of the reason is that there are church leaders who act like they're the reason for church that they're the ones calling you together. That you need to pick the, the Christian leader that you think is most impressive, that you think it has had the most success in the world. And if you'll listen to them, if you'll spend time studying the books that they write, if you'll, if you'll subscribe to their podcasts, if, if you'll share their posts on social media, well, then you may feel like you're a little bit a part of this successful ministry that they're doing. 
Now, see, we wouldn't do that, right? We wouldn't fall into the trap of identifying ourselves with a, a preacher or a Christian leader who we feel that the world looks up to, even though the whole world's not Christian, right? There are certain Christian speakers and leaders and thinkers who are so gifted that they draw the attention of other people outside the church. We wouldn't ever be tempted to find our identity by following them, would we? I don't have to speak for you. I've done it many times in my life. And I'll fall into that trap again. You know, there's something inside of me that puffs up with a sense of warm pride anytime I let somebody know that Max Lucado comes from the Churches of Christ. You know, anytime on one of those reality TV shows where it comes out that one of the singers is a worship leader at some church, I'm online looking at what the church is, and I, I think, well, there's a bunch of people listening to someone sing a Christian song on American Idol, so we got a chance. This isn't something that only happened in Corinth 2,000 years ago. And we need our leaders to remind us in every way they possibly can that church isn't about them. It's about Jesus. It's about Christ crucified. That's it. That's who calls us together. And look, we're always going to have our favorite leaders and preachers. And there's always going to be people who, who talk about God's truth in a way that really connects with us. That's, that's a gift. But may we never lose sight of the, the giver of that gift. My gifts don't belong to me. They were entrusted to me by God. And if I don't share those gifts with you, then I, it's not a gift anymore. It's a possession. We need leaders who remind us that they're just servants, that they're called to work, that they're not, that they don't see themselves as, as the one at the top calling all. Here's the thing. I, I worry sometimes that, that just like the world, we start to reduce leadership to the people who get to make the decisions for all the rest of us. Christian leaders are not primarily the people who get to make the decisions for all the rest of us. They're people who carry the rest of us to the Father in prayer and in devotion and ask God to help them know how to, how to help us. That's Christian leadership. And I have been moved time and again in my life to have, have people at, at other churches I've worked at and, and church, this church right here right now where, where there are church leaders who model for me the fact that they understand that this is not about being seen. This isn't about being put on a pedestal. This isn't about you know, other people just listening when you talk. This is about modeling for others the kind of life that Jesus makes possible to put skin and flesh on, to, to help us understand that it, it really can happen. Because we see it happening in their life, and they're modeling for us how it can happen in our lives too. We see our leaders, but they better not be doing it to be seen. Okay, the next thing he says is that leaders in the church are only leading like Christ when they are consistently helping people grow and develop. Now, this is at the heart of this entire letter. So if you feel like we've talked about it the last two weeks, it's not your imagination. I'm repeating myself. 
here's what's tricky. I, th- I think we live in a world where we like to complete tasks and we like to reach goals. And if we're not careful, we're going to turn Christian spiritual maturity into a task that we can check off or a goal that we can achieve, and then we're going to move on to something else. That's not how this, this experience of being drawn closer and closer to the heart of God That's not how this adventure of being drawn closer and closer to the heart of Jesus is is like. It's not how it works. There's always more. Now, to help us, I think, understand this kind of in a a negative sense, if if you're somebody who loves to read and you find a, a book, a story, that you just fall in love with while you're reading it, Uh, It doesn't even have to be a book. Let's say that it's a film or a TV show and you just fall into the storytelling and you, you look forward to the next chapter and you look forward to the next time you get to sit down and watch it. All of us have experienced that, that sadness, I guess is the, the right term for it, when the story ends. And you wish you could spend more time with the characters in the story. So you go back and you rewatch it or you start reading the book over it, but it's not the same. Because you know exactly what's happening. You, you know exactly that there's a twist on page 72. And, and you try to act surprised, but you know it. And you just, it starts to feel more and more familiar to you. But the excitement of discovery is gone. Right? Or I think, I, I'm beginning, I'm, I'm kind of becoming more sentimental as I get older. Uh, Riley, our daughter, turned 13 yesterday. We would solicit your prayers uh, as, as new parents of a teenager. Right, but all of us have, that's right, Glenn, all of us have seasons of life that come to a close, and there's this emptiness that starts to sneak in. I I am carrying our 10-year-old Reese differently when I carry her to bed, when she falls asleep early at night, because I can't carry Riley that way anymore. And I didn't know that. I wasn't aware of it. Until one night I tried and I almost threw my back out. (laughs) All of us have that sense of emptiness at times when there's a season of life that's closing. And we want to go back there, but we can't go back there. You know, there's another way to think of it. And that would be that maybe you, you set a challenge that was really difficult for you to to complete, for you to reach the end of that. And, and at some point, you get to the place where you've, you've spent so much time and energy and focus that you get there. And then what do you do with yourself the next morning when you wake up? You're kind of listless, right? You think, I don't, what am I, I going to do now with my time and my energy and my effort? I, I achieved this. I, I ran the marathon. This is totally theoretical. <laughs> you know, I... I ran the marathon. I, I wrote the thesis. And now it's over and I don't know what to do with myself. Okay, we never have to have that kind of emptiness and listlessness and sadness in the Christian life because we will never reach the end. Not the side of heaven. And even then it's a beginning. Right? We will never reach the end. So this is not a burden. I know sometimes you can feel like churches, you come to Bible classes or sermons and it's like, you know, 
you're just given more and more spiritual stuff to do that you're, you're inevitably not going to do perfectly, and, then, and, and we're going to keep pressuring you and keep piling on more and more challenges, and you're going to think, I can't catch up, I can't get there. That's, that's not the vision that Paul's giving here. It's like a journey where the journey itself is as much of, of a blessing and an adventure as the destination. It's good news that we won't reach the end. Okay. And then the next thing that he says is that leaders in the church are only leading like Christ when they are constantly calling people to the cross. Now this is where it gets tricky. Because I don't know if you know this about us, but we don't like being crucified. We will do everything we can to avoid it. And so what is tempting for Christian leaders and teachers and speakers to do is to convince you that there's a way to experience resurrection without experiencing crucifixion. And it's a lie. I mean, resurrection always sells better than crucifixion. Always has, always will. And resurrection is absolutely a part of our story. It's a promise made in the heart of God and kept faithfully through the life that God shares with us. But God, God is very clear with us that the way we experience resurrection is always on the other side of a crucifixion that we choose. There is no shortcut. There is no other way. But boy, we really want to figure out a way for there to be another way. We, we can turn Christianity into some churchy-sounding self-help pile of junk that that I don't blame worldly people from shaking their head and walking away from. You know, we, we have to be honest. We have to tell the truth. We were made for resurrection. But the only way we're going to experience it is if in relationships we freely choose to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of another. That that's real life. That's the kind of life you and I were created to get to experience. And not just as parents to our children, not just in, in romantic relationships. We are supposed to find ways every single day to die to ourselves so that we can help somebody else experience the life God wants them to get to experience. God will not hold you down and crucify you. You have to choose it. You have to choose it. And any Christian leader who tells you there's some new way where you're going to experience new life without dying to yourself, and not just once, but over and over and over again, is selling you something, and it's not the gospel. And it's hard. It's hard to listen to what Paul's saying here. And I, I've told you before in this series, I feel addressed. I feel challenged. I feel confronted by 1 Corinthians as much as anybody else in this room because every time I say leaders in the church, at least some of you are thinking about me and asking how faithfully I'm living out the points in my own sermon. Not perfectly, let me tell you. Here's the thing. This is not about me, and this is not about the elders, and this is not about Max Lucado. 
If you're a member of a church, of the church, you're a leader in the church. See, I want to go, I want to go back to verse 10. If you still got it on your phone or your Bible, I want you to look at it. Because Paul says, look, stop bragging about who your preachers are, right? Paul or Apollos. But then he says in verse 10, I laid this foundation. It's Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's what the church is about. We're calling people more and more into that Jesus way of life where they freely choose to sacrifice what they want and they dream for the sake of somebody else. And then he says, but someone else is building on the foundation that I laid. Guess who the someone else is? This is where the metaphor breaks down a little bit because he already told the Corinthians that what? They are God's field and they are God's building. And then he says, surprise, you're also the builders. The Corinthians are the someone else who's now building a church on top of the foundation that Paul laid. Which means that we're that someone else. We have inherited a faith legacy, a foundation that's built on Christ and him crucified, and we have been given the freedom to then develop a church community on top of that foundation. We don't get to make that decision, but we make all kinds of decisions about what kind of church we're going to build on that foundation. And he says some people build with the, the kinds of spiritual materials that were in the temple, Right? Those words that he uses when he talks about precious metals and jewels, those aren't just random. Those are building materials in the temple in the Old Testament. Some people are building with quality material and others are building with hay and grass and, and stuff that burns up when, when fire comes, when the time of testing comes. And, and he says, this is a big warning, sometimes you can't tell the quality of the building materials until the fire. But then you know. Because a church that can't endure the time of testing, isn't a church worthy of bearing the name of God's own son. A church that can't endure. A church where people fall away when it's, it's, it's hard to keep staying connected to the church. When I say a member of the church, I'm not talking about what Keith meant at the beginning of the church when he talked about clicking the button on our app. I'm talking about belonging to a faith community deep in your soul and letting that community not only be something we belong to, but something we understand we're building together. If you're in this, you're contributing to it one way or the other. And here's what I want to say to you. And I feel like every, the last three weeks, I get to the end of these sermons and I end up saying more than I actually plan to say about myself. And here we go again. Okay, when I was a kid, there was a short time where I dreamed about being able to play Major League Baseball. So I would think, you know, at night and stuff, I would imagine it. You know how you are when you're, you're still trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life and you, you haven't yet come to terms with the fact that there could theoretically be limitations to your talent. Right, and so I, I liked playing baseball, I liked watching baseball, and I thought, you know what, I think I would like to spend my life playing center field for the Giants. That's what I'm going to do, so I envisioned it. I even asked God to make it happen. You know, I'm sure he laughed, but it's like, Jesus, get over here and listen to this 12-year-old praying. Okay, so 
I asked him, you know, help me. This is what I, well, pretty soon I figured out I wasn't actually that good at baseball. You know what I was good at? I was good at writing stuff and memorizing it and getting up in church and, and saying it to people. And when I did that, I got positive feedback, and I really liked the positive feedback. So I wrote another talk, and I practiced it, and I preached it. And I got this little old lady after one of my Sunday night sermons handed me a $100 bill, which was like a million dollars to me at that point. And I thought, I'm doing this. So guess what I would envision late at night? I was on a stage. There was a spotlight. It was just on me. And there were all these nameless, faceless, adoring fans watching me perform a sermon and then lining up afterwards to, to you know, pat my back and tell me how amazing I was at this. In my dreams, I was the center and the church was an audience. And brothers and sisters, I'm afraid that I'm not the only Christian leader who as a kid had that vision for church. And that in fact, one of the most difficult things we need to overcome is the idea that church is a place where anybody is just the audience. There is an audience at church, brothers and sisters. It's the throne room of heaven. It's not you. And if I get into a place where I'm treating you like an audience, then the only use I have for you is to like, to like me. You really like me. You know, is that Sally Fields? Anyway, you know, like, I, I'm just asking you to watch me do something to make me feel like I'm good at something, which is exactly the kind of insecurity and anxiety that Paul says Jesus died to free me from. You're not an audience member. You're a leader. You are leading someone in this church somewhere. I promise you. Just like we watch our leaders, you're being watched. If you're a dad and you never sing when we sing, you need to start singing. Your kids are watching you. If, if you're parents and, or grandparents and you, you don't ever invite your younger members of your family to serve on a Saturday to do something to help somebody who's in need, they're going to start to learn what matters most to you and your family, and they're going to realize that church is not nearly as essential as we talk about at church, but it's pretty optional when it comes right down to it. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm with you here. I get it. I know how difficult it is to keep Jesus at the center but we don't do ourselves any favor when we talk, favors when we talk like we're doing it, when we're actually not. Look, the, the first thing when I talk to other preachers, they'll tell me they're a preacher. And you know what, this, the, and then they say what church they're at. You know what the, sec, the, the question is after that, always? What's the next question? What would you guess? How big is your church? That is a less fun question after COVID. So we've all stopped asking it. Or we say, well, you know, there's this many people, but then there's like 3,000 online. <laughs> what is wrong with us? 
I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about preachers. <laughs> what is wrong with us? It's not just us, right? We're all leaders here. And you're either making choices that are leading the people in your life closer to the heart of God or closer to the heart of something else. And look, you're, you, you're a part of other communities and other communities are a part of your life. But those other communities, whether they're career or, or your uh, physical family or a sports passion that you're, you as a family have, I don't care what other communities you're a part of and, and communities that are a part of your life, they don't get to be the foundation of your life. That's Jesus. And Jesus' people. And we have to start making costly decisions that declare that truth to the people who are watching us. And it's not just your kids. It's not just people who are younger than you. There are people who are watching you, how you, you face things, how you deal with your own challenges and, and, and the struggles that you have in life. And they can tell where your trust really is. They can tell where your identity really comes from. And brothers and sisters, it better not come from any other place than Jesus, the only person in your life who before you drew a breath gave everything he was ever going to be so that he could share life with you. He deserves all of it. He deserves all of you and not some sort of watered down conflicted heart that's trying to figure out if you can somehow trick God into giving you a life full of success and money and power and influence because that's the, the life you want, whether or not it's the life God wants for you. Jesus isn't an accessory. He's not a stepping stone. Jesus is everything. He's the foundation. And we have to choose it over and over and over again, because we will trick ourselves into acting like sand is solid rock. We'll mix it together with enough loose rocks and stuff and, and think, well, I can ha handle my weight and, you know, this, this. No, it won't because it's not Jesus and we know it. You're a leader. Will you let me say this to you? You're a leader. Start living like it. You're not an audience member. You're not. And anybody who treats you like that is not the kind of church leader that's helping you get closer to Jesus. It's time for us to lead people through the decisions we make, through the lives that we're building. And it's not a life that you build all by yourself. It's a life that we get to try to build through God's power together. And so the, the foundational truth of this week is, look, the only way that we're going to become who we're supposed to be, bring up the slide, Nate, the only way we're going to become who we're supposed to be is by working with God to help other people become who they're supposed to be. Right? Your achievements can't be about what you're able to do for you our lives are intended to be relational. And so we give ourselves into those relationships to help somebody else be a little bit more like Jesus than they were the day before. And it's in the act of helping somebody else get closer to Jesus that we get closer to Jesus. It's, it's automatic. It's how we're created to be. It's how life is intended to work. But if we just focus on me, if I come to church and I, I'm more interested in consuming what I want than being consumed by the mission of God, this won't happen. 
We're not here to consume. We're not clients. We're not customers. We're not fans. We're disciples. And we're here to get better at it. And the only way we're going to get better at it is together. Come on, let's stand and sing.